Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke to Alvin Crespo, an evolutionary virologist who speaks about the plant virus that infects and often devastates populations of cassava, a root vegetable also known as yucca. Alvin does a great job explaining the complicated and colonial history of how this virus spreads. Cassava is a food crop that is one of the main sources of carbohydrates for the people who farm and eat it around the world, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Think about that. This plant is responsible for giving us humans our energy, energy that we need to work, play, and otherwise live and function. A virus we can even see with a microscope has the ability to threaten the lives and livelihoods of millions of humans by infecting a single plant. It's amazing and scary to think about. For more information about microbes to the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here with Alvin Crespo, who is a PhD candidate in ecology and evolution at Rutgers University in the Duffy Lab. Hey, Alvin. How's it going? Hey, Julia. Pretty good. How about you? It's good. Before we start, can you tell me a little bit about your educational background and what it is that you currently do? Okay, yeah, sure. So I did my undergrad in general biology in the University of Puerto Rico. That's where I'm from, born and raised. I got into research around my third year, I think. I was doing a lot of microbial ecology stuff, understanding like interactions between bacteria and archaea, and it was really interesting, but then I took a evolution course, and then I knew like, you know, that was it for me, so I really love like just the theory of evolution in general, so that summer I decided to seek out internships and I got one at Rutgers with Siobhan Duffy, who is now my mentor. And I loved virus evolution. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about viruses. But it was easy transition from microbes to viruses just because, you know, they're still microscopic, even though viruses are their own world. But yeah, awesome system to study evolution, just evolution theory in, in general. And then obviously there's tons of applications as evidenced by the current pandemic. That was great. What microbe or virus are we going to be talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about some viruses that are not typically well known, which are cassava mosaic begomoviruses. So these are plant viruses. Cool. So before we dig deeper on this, could you explain what a cassava mosaic begomovirus is? And maybe you could break it down and explain what cassava is what mosaic means, and what a bogomovirus is. Ooh, wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll take it slow. All right. So let's break it down. Cassava mosaic bogomoviruses are viruses that infect cassava, which is a very important food crop throughout the world. It feeds around 800 million people. And it's a staple food crop. It's fourth among all crops in terms of production. And in particular, it feeds a lot of people in sub-Saharan Africa, South America, Asia, etc. And so these viruses are part of a 
a family of viruses known as Gemini viruses. They get their name Gemini because they are encapsulated in these like twin particles. So they're really cool looking little viruses. They have circular single-stranded DNA genomes in contrast to what humans have, which is double-stranded DNA. And yeah, these viruses are a very, very big threat to crop production, in particular in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia. And it can cost up to $2 billion in annual crop losses, which is a lot. Wow. It makes sense why you'd be studying this. It seems like it's important to evolution and economically. Um, Also, I just want to say that I had some cassava recently. Oh, really? I was at a Cuban restaurant. Did you like it? Yeah, it was good. I like it. I've had it before. Maybe it was a little under-seasoned. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) yeah. honestly, like, I guess a lot of people grow cassava just because it's very easy to grow. It's drought tolerant, but it's not really very nutritious. It's just easy to grow. It was like, it's like starchy. Yeah, it's it's super starchy. It's like a root vegetable. Yeah. Is that yeah, yeah. It's like a potato almost. Yeah, like, that's what you eat. Yeah. You literally eat like the, the tubers, the, the okay. roots of Yeah, of I like it, but yeah, yeah, I get it. So the cassava mosaic bogomoviruses infect cassava plants. How? How is the virus transmitted? Is there a vector? Explain the process. Yes. So all bogomoviruses are transmitted by a white fly vector. It's this little tiny insect that goes around and feeds on the leaves of the plants. And uh, basically it sucks up uh, virus particles from infected leaves. And then when it's feeding again, it transmits it to the next plant. And yeah, so the typical uh, symptom of these viruses is that it causes a very cool looking like mosaic pattern on the leaves. So you have like little splotches of yellow and green, and that's how you know that it's infected. But also because this potentially interferes with photosynthesis, the roots don't really develop. So when farmers come and take out the plant, they realize that their entire root is, is, they basically have no root, so they can't sell it and they can't use it for food or for products. And so that's one of the ways that it's transmitted by a white fly vector. The other way is like a lot of the times farmers will take cuttings from the plant to use it as planting material and the cuttings might be infected. And so the farmers might be unknowingly propagating the virus by taking infected cuttings and using it as uh, starting plant material. And that's one of the main ways where it gets transported internationally. Like mm-hmm. this is the spread of, the, of these viruses internationally happens when people just take these infected cuttings, they don't check them, start a new crop, and then the virus is introduced into a new country, which is something that's very recently happened throughout Asia because the virus was first found in the Indian subcontinent, so in India and Sri Lanka. And now, like in the last decade, because of international trade of the infected cuttings, it spread to Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and so on. That sounds pretty scary, actually, that it can just... You don't think about plant viruses and how they spread all around the world. You just think of human viruses and how they spread. Is it called a plant pandemic when that happens? Yeah, yeah. It's a pandemic, an epidemic. Um, And we've had many of the, well, not us (laughs) here in the Americas. I should say not in North America. Um, But we've had pandemics and epidemics throughout Africa of these viruses where you get like particular strain or something and uh, that that's very virulent and you start seeing like it spread like wildfire okay that's really interesting 
So does this virus only infect cassava or does it does it infect other plants? Oh, that's a very good question because I think that one mistake that a lot of virologists do is associate one type of virus with a certain type of host when in fact when you talk about like what is a plant virus when you can see some plant viruses quote unquote that can replicate in an insect or that come from fungus or from different types of hosts you have to be careful in the way that you kind of define what plant virus is and the role of alternative host is very important to their evolution so we see all the time like we found these viruses infecting tomato and infected cotton mm -hmm. and infecting like wild plants that are not necessarily produced for crops or, or but they are still f uh, feeding into the evolution of these viruses and so definitely there's a lot of alternative hosts for this but it's mainly associated with its disease in cassava okay cool I read online that in 1971, a cassava lineage was planted that was actually resistant to the virus, and they thought that that would do a good job mitigating these infections. But then another outbreak ended up occurring 20 years later that was a chimera of two different Bogomo viruses. So I was just wondering, how does that happen? And I don't know, I guess, what kind of viral evolution things cause something like that? Okay, cool. Yeah, that's uh, actually right up my alley. So resistance breaking is actually super common in Bogomo viruses just because they have very, very high rates of evolution. They actually mm. have mutation rates that are comparable to RNA viruses, which is a little weird, but it very much potentiates or, or fuels the evolution of these viruses. And then the other way that they can evolve very quickly is through a process called recombination. And okay. this is how the chimera kind of emerged. And recombination just refers to when you have two distinct viruses infecting the same cell, they can sometimes blend together or swap fragments of their genomes and then a new virus can emerge from this creating a chimera and sometimes it will have you know the properties of of both parents sometimes it'll increase virulence or it'll increase transmission or it'll actually increase its host range and it's able to infect other types of hosts and you know it's a very big mechanism uh, of evolution for these viruses and some of my research has actually looked into how this process has impacted the emergence of new cassava mosaic bagomavirus species so currently we know of 11 species of the virus that cause cassava mosaic disease. And from some of the research that I've done, I was able to uncover an emergence of six of the 11 species through recombination. Wow. So it's basically the main mechanism of speciation for these viruses. That's really cool. So in, in the case of these cassava viruses, it seems like they're recombining with closely related viruses is that always how it happens but does this process happen more with closely related viruses or can any two viruses recombine well it's interesting because viruses can do it all so basically we have documented recombination between very closely related viruses which is much more common but sometimes you'll see for example a recombinant from a cassava virus and a tomato virus or mm -hmm you can even go even more distant than that. And we've actually seen between viruses, we've seen recombination happen between RNA and DNA viruses. And actually one of very interesting 
kind of ancient evolutionary origin for a lot of these viruses, in particular the Begomo viruses, is that the family in which it's found, it very likely emerged from a recombination event between a plant RNA virus and a bacterial plasmid. Oh. And so you can even have recombination that happens between viruses and bacteria. How would you be able to tell that? Because you said these are single-stranded DNA viruses. Yes. But you're able to see that it arose from RNA. Yes. Okay, how, so, how is that? Yeah, so because viruses evolve very quickly, it's very hard to tell a signal of recombination by looking just at its genome okay. or at its genes. So what you will do is basically you will look at the protein level and you will look at protein structures and see if there are similarities in the protein structures and in the genes to other organisms. And basically they were able to trace back the evolution of certain proteins to a bacterial common ancestor okay. and some of the other proteins that looked more like RNA viruses. Cool. You've mentioned DNA viruses, you've mentioned RNA viruses. I guess just to give the listeners some context, what are some examples of some DNA viruses or RNA viruses that we might know of? Sure. So for RNA viruses, I think uh, the most familiar would be SARS-CoV-2 and its relatives. So SARS-CoV-1, MERS, uh, etc. Viruses essentially have all types of nucleic acids and transcription mode. So it's basically the way that they convert their starting genetic material into mRNA, and that becomes eventually proteins. And so we have single-stranded DNA viruses like the Begomo viruses. We have double-stranded DNA viruses like herpes simplex virus or chickenpox uh, varicella zoster. We have rabies viruses that are RNA viruses. We have influenza. It's a single-stranded RNA virus and so on and so forth. So, you know, viruses run the gamut in terms of genetic material and their hosts. I'm glad you explained that because there's so much diversity among viruses. And I think we always think of them in the context of how they infect us. And I always just think, oh, it's a virus. I don't think like, oh, this is a virus, but it's, it's genome and its genetic material is like so different from maybe another virus that's infecting me at the same time or something. Yeah, for sure. I've been wondering this whole time, not to change the subject, but what is Bogomo? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so actually, it's it's kind of dumb, but Bogomo viruses, so like the, the actual name Bogomo comes from the first type species that was ever mm, found. Okay. So it was actually called, it's a virus called bean golden mosaic virus. So they kind of like shrunk the B-E from bean and golden go. Uh, mosaic mo and it became okay. Begomo virus. It's kind of stupid. Okay. No, that makes sense. And like for anyone listening, a type species is usually just the first isolate or material that was discovered of some sort of organism or a virus. And I don't know, like all other related things that come after that end up kind of being like named and classified in relation to that first one. Yeah. Yes. It it became like the name for the entire. It's a. It, it's actually a genus of a Bogomo virus. It's actually okay. the most speciose huh. genus of any virus genus in the world. Um, Whoa. So there's tons of plant viruses in this genus, and uh, hmm. yeah. So it, it kind of became the name 
for the entire genus based on this one species. Okay, so there's all these other viruses in the genus and like a lot of other viruses and all of them infect plants, but yes. they infect different plants. Yes. Okay, that's cool. So there must be something in their common ancestry that's just like, you're doing plants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, so you're telling me there's like all these different bagomoviruses, they all infect plants, and they infect plants all around the world. But you also mentioned that these cassava mosaic viruses are only found in Africa and Asia and not not in North America. So can you explain more about the biogeography of all of this? Right. That's actually an interesting story. Bagomoviruses are found all over the world. They actually typically are classified into old world bagomoviruses and new world bagomoviruses. But the thing about the cassava mosaic bagomoviruses is that they're not actually found in the Americas, even though cassava is from the Americas. Oh, but, okay. So what happened was that back in the 1600s, the Portuguese took cassava crops and they brought them back into Africa and in Europe. And once they were introduced into Africa, potentially a virus that was already there infecting some other type of crop decided to jump into this new host, this new niche to occupy that nobody was occupying at the moment because cassavas were not endemic to the area. Hmm. And so it jumped into cassava and it, now it's become very well adapted to cassava and it just goes from there. So this is a new problem because, you know, if we're talking about evolutionary time skills, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of years. But this is a virus that's emerged in this host in just the last couple hundred years. Yes. And so I I can imagine that turned cassava from something that isn't impacted by these big epidemic viruses from from what you've said so far to something that's now in some places being like decimated by this virus. So yeah. can you describe more about the impact of these viruses on the cassava population and what that means for agriculture and human things yeah so the effects of these viruses are very notable obviously i talked a little bit about how they can cost up to two billion dollars in annual crop losses wow and this is just throughout sub-saharan africa not taking into account the damage that it causes in asia the problem is that in africa this is a staple food crop. Like mm. they're using it for food and asia is more used to to make products uh, okay from it. And when it becomes such a big problem in Africa, because it's such an accessible food and also just because it's uh, literally the main source of carbohydrates, or I guess I think the second most predominant source of carbohydrates throughout sub-Saharan Africa, it becomes a really big problem because when you have so much loss, it leads to food insecurity. And and in fact, the recombinant that you spoke, uh, the chimera that you spoke about earlier, actually caused a very severe epidemic throughout sub-Saharan Africa, and it led to famine in many villages. And people actually died as a result because they had no access to food, which was cassava predominantly. Wow, that's really sad. So you said 800 million people yeah. eat or incorporate cassava into their diet in some way. So I originally just assumed, oh, it's this big export. But it actually sounds like... People eat it where it's grown yeah. quite a bit. And so I could see, yeah, that's devastating. Yeah. This seems like a pretty big issue. People going through famine and such an important crop that's so important worldwide. So, like, why haven't I heard about any of this? Well, um, 
I guess the the main is it because I'm ignorant? No, not at all. Not at all. Most people haven't. Heard, I hadn't heard of it okay. before uh, getting involved in this. No, um, it's just that it's not a very big crop in the U.S., so it's not really a problem here. It's not a really a problem in the Americas because these viruses are not found where it's predominantly grown, which is in South America, and so it's definitely a huge problem. It's just not something that directly impacts us. So you're saying that if people somewhere in the world are suffering and they're dying because they don't have food, yeah. but it doesn't impact Americans, <laughs> that America doesn't care about it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pretty much, but I think it's... Uh, we do care about it. Obviously, I'm doing research. I mean, I care about it yeah. now, but I yeah. just, I just, I guess I just mean like we only hear about the things on the news, I guess, that are affecting us directly. But food insecurity is a really, a really big issue. And I wish there was more discourse on this. I yeah, guess. no, I totally agree. I think one of the issues is we typically go to whatever impacts human health directly. So we're mostly focusing anyways on human viruses. There's obviously viruses that infect all kinds of things, including cattle, plants, things that we care about as well. But the the money is always going to go towards what impacts our health directly. And so I think one other thing is that it seems like the research community in the U.S. is uh, well, I, I wouldn't say the say research. It. I wouldn't say that. OK, so I wouldn't say the research community. I would say like in general, we are very reactionary. And we're not proactive about problems that might impact us in the future, or at least not as much as we should be. That's a good point. Yeah. And so this is not a problem in the U.S. currently, but bogomaviruses are everywhere. Plant viruses are everywhere. And they do infect some of our crops. And eventually they will become a bigger problem for us as well. So this, it impacts Africa. So it's not impacting us directly, but mm -hmm. it could serve as a way for us to understand more about these viruses, help other countries while also preparing ourselves for worse situations in the future. Well, and I guess tying into this is just I'm sure, you know, the distribution of plants changes with climate change, the distribution of viruses changes with climate change. The distributions of the vector as well. The like vector. You oh, see yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the white flies. Which is another issue. In general, just vectors or vector diseases, like as you increase temperatures because of climate change, you will start seeing the migration of different vectors into, into new areas that they were not previously found, carrying with them all sorts of diseases, and they will become problems in areas where they currently are not. And I think a lot of people who are, I guess, just like not so worried about climate change, I always see them rolling their eyes or getting annoyed when you say, oh, there's going to be floods, there's going to be famines. But this is a really good example of sub-Saharan Africa is a hot climate. Yeah. And they have this crop that they depend on that's a very prevalent crop and it's gone through multiple periods it sounds like where a lot of this crop is decimated and a lot of people they can't eat so i don't think this is very far-fetched it sounds like this could absolutely happen here how much land in america is farmland yeah. with crops that we need to survive so just because you know maybe americans aren't having cassava for most of their carbohydrate input what happens if our potatoes go bad or oh yeah something. and funny enough there's a very big potato virus x and potato virus y are becoming 
very big issues in the U.S. currently as well. So, so they're an emerging pathogen here, right here in the U.S. These are RNA viruses, so they're a little bit different, but it's still the same concept. Like they eventually will become a problem for agriculture, for people's livelihoods, and it's something that we should take into account. I haven't heard about this these potato viruses either. So I think that maybe I am just ignorant. Maybe oh, no. I just don't oh, know no. anything Trust about viruses. Me. Most people haven't. <laughs> All of this is really interesting and really topical. And this keeps coming up of like, you know, maybe this particular virus doesn't affect things in America or like I haven't heard about these things. So no one's heard about them. But like, so how did you hear about this? And how did you end up getting involved in studying this particular virus? Right. So, well, I guess when I got to Rutgers, I had no idea what I wanted to work on. I just knew I wanted to do virus evolution in some type of way. And my PI, Siobhan Duffy, she actually is part of this collaboration group, which is funded by the National Science Foundation, or NSF. And it actually is looking to investigate the evolutionary dynamics of these cassava mosaic viruses through like a holistic lens. So they're mm. they're trying to understand the evolution, how it's impacted by the vector, how it's impacted by vegetative propagation, which is how when you take the infected cuttings and, and start using them as planting material, that has a different effect on the evolution of these viruses. And there's research going on exploring the evolutionary dynamics of all of these viruses. And we have involvement from multiple institutions here in the U.S. and also a few institutes in Africa. And we collaborated closely on this. I decided that when I came into the project, I noticed that there was not a lot on recombination involved in the project. And I was very interested in seeing how the interactions between viruses influences their evolutionary trajectories and so recombination just seemed like a great thing to explore and yeah I became associated with the collaboration to look at how this process recombination impacts these evolutionary outcomes for these viruses. Well yeah and it sounds like with these viruses recombination is a really important aspect of their evolution and how they infect things so. Are there any challenges associated with living in New Jersey, living in America, and, you know, your study organisms are all the way in Africa? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly challenges. I think the way that the collaboration was set up is very strategic, and it's a good way to set up the collaboration just because what we do is we've stratified the the types of research that we do. So in Africa... A lot of the research that's being conducted, is it involves the white flies. So you can't bring in the white flies into the U.S. because since the virus is mm. not found in the U.S. and in North America, there would be a very big problem if it escaped from the lab mm. through a, a white fly vector. And so a lot of the research is being done with the white flies in Africa. And then a lot of the other research we do with the vegetative propagation in particular, we do in North Carolina State where they have all the greenhouses and the the setup and the experimental expertise from those scientists. And then here at Rutgers, we kind of do the bioinformatics work. So we mostly do like uh, the analysis of the DNA sequences that we get from the different experiments. And I think the way it was set up, it makes total sense and it, it, it avoids other issues that you might find in international collaboration. Like what? 
Well, I mean, there's uh, obviously something that we've talked about a lot in our DEI journal club, our diversity, equity, and inclusion journal club here at Rutgers, is the concept of parachute science mm-hmm. and how a lot of people or a lot of scientists from the U.S. will go into foreign countries, do research, exploit researchers there and their resources and not give due credit and take advantage uh, of them, essentially. And so I think the way that we've set it up, it makes total sense where we actually give credit where it's due. And hopefully (laughs) we're avoiding doing this type of thing. Well, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. And there's plenty of amazing researchers in other places in the world. And I think sometimes in America, we just assume, oh, like we're on the cutting edge. But no, I mean, you would, I'm sure the researchers who live around cassava and have enjoyed this crop their whole lives, not only care about it more than the given person here, but they probably totally understand all the issues with it. So that's really good. No, yeah, definitely. And I mean, yeah, just like you said, like their relationship with the crop and with the virus is different and also their expertise. Like they do things that that we don't know how to do. So their part in the collaboration is essential to completing the project. I might cut out what I'm about to say, but we're so America centric and for example like I work on algae and I'm always trying to like find new protists and organisms and you know all these field guides I have as as it should be because I live in North America are freshwater algae of North America marine algae of North America and I guess I don't think that much about the organisms that are outside of North America because I'm never outside of North America but a couple years ago I was at a phycology conference or algae conference and they had a speaker there who is from Burkina Faso. There's a, a <laughs> there's a mosaic virus, a species that's uh-huh. called African cassava mosaic Burkina Faso virus. Huh. Well, the, this is like really embarrassing, but I, at the time, didn't know that that was a country. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And this guy, he was amazing. He was this amazing scientist and he gave an amazing presentation and he does all the same things I do, which is like he goes out in nature and he catalogs all these different protists and like algae and other microbes that he finds in the terrestrial aquatic habitats of Burkina Faso. And yeah, a lot of them are very similar, but a lot of them are very different. And I bet a lot of them are novel and pretty big scientific discoveries. And I just remember listening to this talk and being like, shit, I should definitely be a little more worldly. And also the things this guy is finding are amazing. And I hope he's able to give talks at more conferences because it was like, you know something new for once to learn about it was like really interesting so now the african scientists in what i do they're like the top people so alvin you've talked a lot about this one particular virus its prevalence all over the world which actually unravels a lot of different topics of conversation and issues in itself but i also wanted to talk more about the general evolution of viruses and i know you know a lot about this so is there anything regarding just viral evolution you want to bring up? Like it's such a it's such a hot topic these days. Yeah, uh, origins are definitely <laughs> a big topic right now. I guess we could talk about where do viruses fit in with the rest of life? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, yeah. So there are many hypotheses on how viruses came about. I guess there's three that are 
the more traditional ones, the ones that we talk about the most and we've explored. And the first one would be the virus escape or the progressive hypothesis. And this just posits that there was cellular life already and there are these things inside genomes of cellular life called mobile genetic elements. And these are basically parts of the genome that can move around the genome. Yeah. And this hypothesis just posits that some of these mobile genetic elements kind of, besides moving around the cell, found a way to move between cells. Okay. And they became more complex as time went on, eventually leading to the emergence of viruses. And there's some evidence for this as the evolutionary origin from HIV. And Mm. there's a very big mobile genetic element in our genomes. It actually is around 40% of our genomes, and it's called retrotransposons. Mm-hmm. And these retrotransposons essentially are single-stranded RNA that has a reverse transcriptase. So that's that's an enzyme that basically reads RNA and like spits out DNA, right? Yes. So essentially the RNA is converted by this enzyme into double-stranded DNA. Okay. It goes into the nucleus. And then from there, it actually becomes integrated into the nuclear genome. Uh And then you get transcription of it. And this is kind of like the general way that retrotransposons work. And it's exactly the same way that HIV works, which is a retrovirus. And so they think that because of these similarities, it might be a hint of the origin of viruses in general. Oh, that makes sense. That's cool. And so what's the second hypothesis? So the second is one that you actually be more familiar with. It's called the regressive hypothesis. And what it posits is that viruses come from more complicated, like free living organisms. Mm -hmm. And much like the mitochondria, it kind of like lost genes and became more of of a replicator, a cheater and like not able to live on its own. Exactly. Okay. And became something that just uses hosts to be able to mm. replicate. And there's also some evidence for maybe that occurring as well. Because we see that viruses actually have some common ancestry with some rickettsia. Yeah. Which Rickettsiales. is... Yeah. Rickettsiales. I don't know how to say Yeah, it. some viruses have shared ancestry with a pathogen... A type of bacteria. Okay, yeah. So that's the hypothesis that I guess I'm most familiar with. I didn't realize the connection to the bacteria. Could that just be like a coincidence or like a convergence that they both... Because once things get reduced, they just keep the most essential bits. So could... Okay. I'm not trying to dispute it. I just had that thought. No, I mean, yeah, I, I... There's detractors of this hypothesis as well. I don't want to be a detractor. No, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's no settled science. Uh, So basically, it it could have been because we've seen this mechanism happen before with the mitochondria. But this would be like, a, I guess, a more extreme case of it just because, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So like something that was free living stopped being free living and didn't need some of those free living genes. So those genes through selective forces went away or accumulated mutations and no longer function as genes. And then eventually this thing just loses functions and loses functions and you can't really gain them back. And so then it ended up being like less than a cell. Yeah. Okay. So what's the third hypothesis? The third hypothesis. So the first two hypotheses 
are centered on the concept of viruses coming after cellular life. Okay. The third hypothesis is that mm. viruses actually predate life and they, okay. were, they came first. And essentially, these are very simple, obviously, replicator uh, molecules that just became more complex through time and led way to cellular life. And that would be the third one. Interesting. And so the viruses we know of today, they all need a host to replicate. So yes. would that hypothesis mean that at the beginning of life, they were able to self-replicate and then they lost that ability? Uh, I don't know. I mean, okay. <laughs> maybe. I think you have essentially a bunch of self-replicating parts right, right. Ar going around in that primordial soup. And eventually they assemble into yeah. maybe something more complex. Um, okay. But I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, and so when you were talking about the second hypothesis, you said there's no settled science on this. And I think that as a scientist, people always, and when I say people, I guess I mean like angry people in the public. They're often like, oh, there's no answer. Oh, there's an emergent virus that's making people sick. Well, like, why don't we know everything about it? Why haven't the scientists solved it? I think it's really important maybe if we talk a little bit about how science itself evolves and we don't always have the answers. Like, sure. there's so many big questions we don't have the answers to. We don't know where life started. We don't know if there's other life in the universe. We don't, we don't know any of this. So, yeah. yeah, no, that's very true. I think it's important to remember that there are no absolutes in science. It's an mm -hmm. iterative process that essentially, as you continue to do science, you remove more of the uncertainty around any type of question. But there's always going to be that, that little bit of uncertainty. And we need to take into account that, you know, science is the best way or I guess the best method that we have to understand the world around us. There are no absolutes, but we definitely do know more than what we did a year ago, 10 years ago, 100 years yeah. ago, thousands of years ago. That's a really good way to put it. I think people forget the scientific method it's just a way of testing hypotheses. It's not necessarily a way of just saying this is absolutely true. But I guess, you know, when there's thousands of scientists testing related hypotheses and they're all coming to similar conclusions, say on climate change or how viruses evolve, then there's enough evidence that we should accept that information and trust it. But that doesn't mean that in five years from now, the paradigms might shift, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. And as time goes on and methods become more sophisticated, we get a little bit closer to understanding things. Typically, you won't get further away from it. Sure. Um, so th that's another important thing to t take into consideration. Just because we don't know absolutes, uh, it means that, you know, we don't know anything. Like, yeah. we do know things, and we're close to knowing a lot of things. But it's just, it's one of those things where we just build up a case through robust experimentation and investigation and we get to some conclusions that can help us yeah that's great is there anything else you want to add about viruses or science or anything before we wrap up um well i did this a while ago but i did a back of the envelope calculation and oh. there are i think it was obviously an underestimate but there's around 10 to the 27 stars in the universe okay and our estimates posit that there's around 10 to the 31 
virus particles just on Earth. So that means that Whoa. viruses outnumber stars by 10,000 times. So essentially, it's a virus world, and we just live in it. Wow. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's just a virus world. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Alvin. If people listening want to follow your work or follow you on social media, are there any links or handles they can look up? Yeah, so you can follow me in Twitter at Alvin Crespo 2 just because I'm the second one. My dad is the first. Um, <laughs> I, I think that'd be the best way to, to keep okay. up with, with my work. Great. Thank you so much. This has been great. No problem. Thank you. Alvin wanted me to add that none of the three virus origin hypotheses he discussed are mutually exclusive, and viruses could have used any combination of these three types of events to evolve and may have even evolved multiple times. We may never know exactly how this happened, but we also may not have sequenced or discovered enough viruses to come up with any universal conclusions at this time. I didn't know anything about cassava mosaic bogomo viruses before this conversation, and I'm glad I've learned about them because they have quite devastating impacts around the world. I do, however, like learning about plant viruses for a change after hearing about SARS-CoV-2 for the last three years, and hopefully I can have more virologists on the podcast soon. Also, going through and editing this podcast made me kind of hungry for some cassava. I started looking up different ways to prepare it, and I'm reminded of last week's episode with David Zilber because there are tons of ways to ferment cassava and cassava products like flour to make all sorts of food. My roommate and his girlfriend actually made fufu one weekend, which is a soft and sort of gooey fermented cassava dough that is popular in Nigeria and the Caribbean. I've been very excited about fermentation lately, and who knows, maybe this podcast will slowly transform or ferment itself into a food podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, with the exception of that terrible joke I just made, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes or the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>